Hi, this is Dr. Carl Goldcamp. If you're interested in learning about the ketogenic diet like I was, to save my own life, then this is probably the podcast for you. Eight years ago, I knew nothing about it. Six years ago, it saved my life. Three years ago, I started researching and talking with some of the authorities in the field and attending medical conferences about this to understand why and how keto so dramatically changed my and my wife's Judy's lives. The purpose of this podcast is to share our journey of discoveries with you in understanding how keto is so effective in improving so many different conditions from obesity, epilepsy, diabetes, infertility, MS, Alzheimer's, heart disease, to name a few. So take a step away from all the hype you've probably heard and roll up your sleeves with me and join me weekly to explore this living miracle that anyone can access. We'll talk science, we'll talk food. We'll explore its history and evolution to today, which is that the sheer wonder of the ketogenic way of eating has changed untold number of lives, unlike anything before it. And in case I forget to mention it, please join our Facebook group, Keto Naturopath. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp, and welcome back for another episode of the Keto Naturopath. Today I have, um, I hope you'll find it an interesting story and something that's relevant, but you'll hear why this thing that you probably don't know about, that you should know about, has been kept out of the news for a long time. Okay, let's go back in my time machine. 20 years ago, 1997, August, first week of, that I'm going to read you from Time Magazine, first couple paragraphs of an article named Beyond Cholesterol, an amino acid called homocysteine may be as closely linked to heart disease and easier to treat. So I'm going to give you my paraphrased introduction of what this is all about. So the the concept, and actually I'm reading from notes from a uh, PowerPoint presentation I did at uh, UMass College of Pharmacy back in 2007 and 2008, and it was about uh, the overall gist of why I was there and what I, my function was, was to do a presentation on this evolving idea of SNPs, singular nuclear polymorphisms. A singular nuclear polymorphism is when you're off by one nucleotide in your genome and you have a slight mutation, so a mutation by one nucleotide as opposed to two or three or others. So they call that a SNP, singular. So this is before 23andMe. So I know for some of you, it seems like the dark ages, but uh, you had to actually know the SNP ahead of time and you had to request it from Quest, which is a lab company, and that's how you would get it on your patients. So naturally, I did it on most everybody in my family and myself and my wife and was in, in, in a lot of patients because it came up. And so I was deep into looking at one at the time, MTHFR, which is now pretty common and there's lots of information and lots of false information out there that you can Google. But at the point, th- then it was pretty esoteric. So in presenting this to this particular post-grad class, there were already pharmacists coming back for additional class at UMass. They had never heard of this. But why would they care? So they would care, and the point of the talk was that patients that are on medications that have this particular SNP would be more vulnerable to certain medications that are known to block various B vitamins, such as folic acid, which is considered B9, B12, and you can even get into things like B6 and so on and so forth. And mostly it was a B12 story and folic acid story. 
you know, and so you'd look at what medications would they be? Well, they would be things that have to do with like antacids or your proton pump inhibitors. Those would be the Prilosec. And so that those medications could induce in a normal person a B12 deficiency and folic acid deficiency. It's because you have this thing in your stomach called chief cells that produce a thing called intrinsic factor that when you eat, it stimulates release of this intrinsic factor that has to be swept down into your top of your small intestine. And that intrinsic factor, while it's being swept down, binds with B12. When it gets into the top of your small intestine, it then the bound intrinsic factor and B12 get to go through the small intestine and out into your circulatory system. So that's how you get B12 into your system is because it stimulates your stomach, combines with intrinsic factor, and there you go. Well, when you're on a proton pump inhibitors and for the most part antacids in general, anything that will prevent the release of stomach acid, so stomach acid is made of pepsin and intrinsic factors, things that are secreted by the chief cells, that when you prevent those secretions, though you will have a lower acid in your stomach and therefore you'll feel better, quote-unquote feel better, um, you are actually depriving your body's ability to bind with B12 and therefore you start to immediately induce a B12 and folic acid deficiency. Okay then, so now you come into this population of people that have this particular SNP. And we'll call it MTHFR, but even within that MTHFR, there's mutations that are hardly negligible. They're not going to make any change to those that severely slow down the processing of activating B12. So they already have a B12 deficiency, you might say, anyway. And so now to further that, you're going to throw some people into crisis. That was the point of my talk, giving them a big story about all this background to saying, guess what? Your medications that you're grinding out there in your mortar, mortar and pestle in the back of your pharmacy shop, they don't do that anymore, by the way. We can pretend they do. They just bag up stuff and call you in the morning when you're when your prescription's ready. So anyway, but we'll pretend they're back in the mortar and pestle days and they're grinding it up there and call you in the morning after six hours of hard work on your particular prescription. Well, guess what? They will probably induce in these people schizophrenia, bipolar disorders, certainly severe depression, manic depressive disorders. Did I say that? Yeah. And OCD. So any of those could be immediately triggered or if the, these patients are on various medications, their conditions are going to get stunningly worse, come into critically worse. So that's how it's a big deal. This issue has really not been explored since. <laughs> you know, it's like, why didn't they listen to me? Because there's, you know, now we're buried under all this SNP information from 23andMe and off to the little apps that can help you figure out what your SNPs are. So that's simply my prequel. That's simply my paraphrasing little background on SNPs and MTHFR and so on and so, so forth. My extra little bit is as you look into methylation, and that's what MTHFR is related to, this bigger cycle called methylation and folic acid cycle. Consider two circles in front of you, all right? Moving kind of in opposite directions. Well, 
that methyl MTHFR provides a weak link. If you have one of those bad SNPs, you have a weak link in your methylation cycle. Methylation, in a very general way of looking at it, is simply taking a thing called homocysteine, a bigger amino acid, and converting it into methionine. It's like a big loop. And there's a lot of stops, like a bus, if you will. There's a lot of stops on the way and potential problems or things can work smoothly, but it's homocysteine to methionine, methionine to homocysteine. And along the way, you kick off a lot of things that help for neurotransmitters and so on and so forth. So it's related to everything. Um, but think of the word homocysteine. So you don't want, so when we do blood work, like I had mentioned in the past of these guys that we're working with, now I, we pretty much do it on anybody who you know, pays for this panel and sees a, a larger picture of who they are and what issues they have to work on, is that we found the correlation is that they have a very high out-of-range homocysteine. And that high out-of-range homocysteine ha directly has to do with heart disease, cardiovascular disease, cerebral vascular disease. So those are things like dementia and stroke. So it's not good. And I'm not going to go into all the, what they call the pathophysiology of methylation and homocysteine. I'm asking you just to remember the word homocysteine. It's an amino acid, a big amino acid. And you don't want to be out of range. Ideally, you the range is huge. It's up to like 11 or 12. You want to be between 5 and 7. That's the sweet spot. But we're finding the guys that I worked with, they were up in their, their 20s. You know, so they're way out of range. And so they have an issue. And that means, looking at that, they probably, if they don't have it right now in their record, these guys in their late 40s and early 50s, and I, I'm just focusing on them because it's a nice little demographic, but others have had this as well, that you bet they have the early signs of cardiovascular diseases. And guess what? It's easily reversible. So homocysteine. Now let me read you uh, the first two paragraphs of a, a well-written article on uh, in time, back when times covered things like this. It was a different time, no pun intended. So the name of the article is called Beyond Cholesterol, an amino acid called homocysteine may be as closely linked to heart disease and easier to treat. Between 1992 and 1996, 64 men and women in Norway died quietly. Their passing was noted by their families, of course, but otherwise was largely unremarked. All the deceased, after all, suffered from heart disease, and many had undergone bypass surgery. Deaths like these are not the stuff of headlines. Last week, however, the dead Norwegians made the evening news. What all of them had in common, in addition to sticky hearts and premature deaths, was elevated level of an amino acid called homocysteine. The patients were part of a study published in the current, current journal of the New England Journal of Medicine. And on and on it goes. So that current journal is 1997, if you want to go back and look it up, and have a subscription to uh, New England Journal of Medicine. So remember, I'm this the overriding topic of this particular story is why you don't know about this issue that is a very big issue. In fact, it's even probably bigger than the whole cholesterol cabal and I now hope that you've listened to me enough and know the whole cholesterol issue is stupid and it's unsupported. And it's just not, it's not me being a smart Marty Pants. It's just, it's been written in a number of books there and I, I hope you are already there. If not, listen to my previous podcast. 
So there was a guy named Kilmer McCulley. Talk about a unique name. And so he was at Mass General in Boston. And so I was in Mass General, and he's now in his uh, 30s and 40s. He gets the idea that he starts noticing that homocysteine is elevated in a lot of people that have uh, high cholesterol. And these are all the high cholesterol people that are going to be put on statins, of course, or concurrent with statins and not getting much of improvement. So he, this is back in uh, the 70s, 20 years prior to the article I just wrote to you. I wrote to you. And uh, he started, he got some grants to study this and he found that there was a correlation. And, you know, this is a small study because he's just a guy in the hospital interested in doing these things. But this is how the world worked back then. If you had a critical thinker that had a few document, documented cases and he could put it together, and then of course he'd have to do some research behind this to make this, to present this to request for a grant from National Institutes of Health. Uh, and he got a couple of them, and they got to be bigger studies and bigger studies. But then he was shut off. Douche. Uh, the money went out of, of grants or harder to come by. But also what happened, there was a political tide that turned against anybody who was against the cholesterol theory. Sound like now? <laughs> but anyways, this is, this is one man. So he was, they were snubbing out his idea before it got to be a revolution in essence. Uh, so it, it got to be to the point of being noteworthy and that was snuffed out. So for 20 years, and he was laughed at. So they actually, because the NIH and he lost his grants and the tide turned against uh, this whole homocysteine thing, uh, they actually made him into a laughing, you know, they put it in all the various journals, nearly made him into a laughing stock to the point that he was fired from, from uh, Mass General and he had to go to Providence, Rhode Island. So now he's in Providence, Rhode Island, which at the day, was considered the backwaters to where current medical thinking was. And he just stayed there for roughly 20 years and uh, did some minor, he couldn't get money for his funds. And then 20 years later, these articles start showing up and realizing that he was right. So he's now in his 60s. And now being back then, he was in his 60s. And there is an article written in 1997 as well. So concurrent within a day or two, it's called the rise, the fall and rise of Kilmer McCulley. So the fall was what I just told you, and the rise is not posthumously, but it was after it was a little bit too late for him to to do anything about it. And the article is really interesting because it goes in and talks about the political waves within medicine and who gets the funding and who gets recognized and so on and so forth. So uh, that's a lot about today's situation, but. Uh, the Fall and Rise of Kilmer McCulley. Uh, it's a very interesting read. Uh, he's a very interesting guy, and uh, but he reminds me of uh, Dr. Kraft. Remember the whole Kraft thing of taking, uh, he was the first to take fasting insulin together with glucose over a glucose tolerance test. These were critical thinkers that said, you know, I'm going to try these things. They went out, they discovered something, they brought it back, said, I'm unsure, but I would like to get a little more funding to have a larger study to be able to verify that this is a thing that I'm looking for. That is exceedingly hard to do right now. There's so much political money. I mean, there's so much money in the system that you you, you can't be against the uh, the big money. I won't go too far down there, but you get what I'm saying. It's intensely interesting. So. Back in, so now I'm 10 years after all that, and I'm making, you know, my presentation, 
And so I'm going into homocysteine. Oh, I should say Kilmer Mercalli uh, did finally write a book about his experiences, but mostly it was the, the homocysteine, the theory of atherosclerosis, which is the placking, placking or the thickening or the the occlusion of your blood vessels, leading to stroke, dementia, heart attack, and so on. And so it, that's that was the gist of my talk was saying we needed to go back to look at homocysteine. We needed to understand the methylation cycle. And now to that, we're adding a layer of some people are more acutely at risk for these particular situations that Kilmer Mercalli was talking about because they are already partially deficient of B12 and folic acid because of their genes, their SNPs. And if they are given medications, like we just talked about, they are really going to suffer quickly. In fact, you could precipitate heart attack, dementia, all these things. So isn't that interesting? Okay, so I'm just going to leave that story there. I'll put some references. Um, but it's funny when you keep your, I mean, this was an intense interest for me for a couple of years, and then I shelved it in part because I had to focus on my practice and uh, kind of like those guys. You just had to go back to the, the bread and butter things of your life because it's so on and so forth. But now it is reoccurring and I brought that kind of thinking into the uh, labs that I did for these guys and realized that there is a set of people that that have elevated homocysteine and are at risk of heart disease and so on and so forth. But now I'm looking at it, why isn't the you know high-fat, low-carb diet, the ketogenic diet, a panacea for everybody? You know, why isn't we just say, hey, here, let's just calculate, you know, out, they have 20 carbs or less per day and calculate the proteins they need and the rest is going to be fat, educate them on good fats. Why, why can't we just do that and have the world be happy for everybody? You know, why is it that only 50% do well by that? And after that, and regardless, you know, whether I, and I've said this probably a hundred times on these different podcasts, whether we're talk, talking about the big verified studies of, of Verda Health or we're talking about the various hospital outcomes, it all comes down to 50%, which I'm thinking is really like 40%, but we're still splitting hairs at that point. It's marvelous that 50%, you know, you can reduce type 2 diabetes, 50%. What about the other 50%? So it's my quest to further understand that 50%. What is going on in them what are their labs like? You know, I told you about the spectra cell. What are their nutrient deficiencies? So if I find a group of people of either gender that have homocysteine and by intercellular nutrient deficiencies, I find that they're borderline deficient or, or frank deficient, frankly deficient in B12, folic acid, B6, B2, choline, you know, that is a setup for that whole methylation and they have a lot of problems. So we're now saying, well, let's fix this up. So it's a little bit, my analogy I've been using is it's a little bit like a car that just couldn't get off the starting blocks, that you know couldn't get off the starting point. It didn't go anywhere when it was told to go. So you come back and you realize, you know, why didn't somebody pump up these tires? Why didn't somebody fix that pothole in front of the car? It's a little unfair to expect that they're going to have any sort of progress 
with the handicaps that they have. So let's take care of their handicaps. So homocysteine, as I mentioned before, is easily addressed. If you can identify it, and of course you look at their diet, and now we're just going to say the average person is on 90% processed foods. Yeah, we know about the processed food and the addictions and so on and so forth, but we're now just trying to right, fill in the potholes, put the air on the tires, get this thing so it starts to move and head them off in that direction. So if we can address their homocysteine and bring it back into reasonable range, we have now taken the risk of heart attack, stroke, dementia, cardiovascular disease, atherosclerosis, all of that, pretty much is all the same thing. So we've reduced all that. That's a big pothole to fill in that can be filled in. And now let's go on to, or maybe concurrent with that, start educating them on dropping their carbs or educating them on the different kinds of carbs and bring that down to, for a while, let's say a year of 20 grams or under, now you're going to see severe weight loss. Severe, that's a strong word. Um, you're going to see some effective weight loss. But you had you done that before, you probably wouldn't have seen effective anything. They're saying, I can't do this. You're making my life a lot worse. So can you imagine if somebody has these SNPs and they had this homocysteine, and now you're going to, you're going to tell them, don't have any carbs, you know, and, and you're going to say, well, you know, they're going to have meat only. And they're probably not going to have any organ meat. So they perhaps might even be stretched even further for a B12 folic acid deficiency. That's where the liver and or egg yolks come in a lot. They save a lot of people's lives, in my view. So isn't that interesting? So there's kind of a homocysteine story. Tell me what you think about that. Feel free to write in some questions. I'm half thinking of really blowing this up into a a program on homocysteine, how to tame your homocysteine and get on with the ketogenic diet. All right. So a few other topics that come up. And I have to say, and I wouldn't have thought that I would have been in this position. So six years ago, we started on the ketogenic diet as well before it became easy to do. And the only reason we got started in that direction is because we were both very ill. You know that story. And frankly, we got into it because of bone broth. You know, I was I was worried strictly to heal my gut. And from bone broth, I, you know, I kept on thinking about what I'd learned in medical school, butyrate enemas. And I go, well, butyrate enemas, they're messy and they're not fun, but they're supposed to be very healing. Well, how else can you make butyrate? I started reading about the ketogenic diet, which actually makes butyrate. That's what the ketones are. Beta hydroxy butyrate. So that's how we got into it. So then it's become pretty commercial and there's articles all over the place and products all over the place and life in some ways is better and in some ways not at all. And so now when I've gotten into a focused group on weight loss, so keto attracted a lot of people by weight loss and it doesn't work for a lot of people, as you know, but it should work for everybody. That's my perception. It should work for everybody. So what can we do to make it work for you kind of thing? So in having to go to a very deep dive a couple times now with a group of people, I've learned that look at all these other things that can be fixed up to help these people. So I would not have brought together these pieces of homocysteine, that story from I told over 10 years ago, looked into it. Um, and now it's like, wow, it's 
as current now as it was then, as it was back in 1997 when these articles were written, as it was back in the time of Kilmer McCulley and uh, all that he worked on in the 70s. That's also concurrent when, when Kraft was doing his work as well. So it's current then, it's current now, it needs to be taken care of. And I find that when you get into these niches, whether you're a keto guy or a keto woman or a keto researcher or got your, they're not going to talk about this. They're absolutely not going to talk about this. They want to keep you in the track of this is what you need to do. Well, I don't see it as that easy. I've never seen anything be one thing. You have to address other things. There may be a main thing. And I do believe the ketogenic diet is kind of like what I've said before, kind of the the big elephant in the room, that that's the big thing. If you can get that to move, you're going to have an amazing change in your life. But there's things you need to do to get that addressed first. And that's what we're talking about. So it's my work with people initially focused on weight loss that we had to look at other factors. And so now my plate's been full with these other factors at the same time having people log their food on a daily basis of 20 grams or less of carbs of and, and the measured protein we calculate per person, but it's usually, call it 100 to 150, and that depends on the height and weight and so on and so forth of the person and the gender, and the rest is fat. And so working with them again and again to get that down and to get processed foods out and to convince them as busy as their life is, is like, let's not go to processed foods for everything. There's a lot of garbage in processed foods. So coming to processed foods as a concept, I should say, coming to the within the within the idea, within the topic of processed foods, is the topic of addiction. And nobody likes talking about addiction. Nobody likes being called a, an addict. So though we if you go to medical conferences now with keto, they will roll out the term that, you know, sugar is worse than crack, and so on and so forth. And these are pretty interesting concepts. But I find therapeutically, it's hard to simply shoot somebody with a concept of, hey, you're an addict, we need to take care of it. Because that's not very constructive. <laughs> you know, you need to put them in a more favorable position and sort of not even sneak up on it, but you mention it but it has to be sustained over time. And that's where Dr. Ifland, Joan Ifland, please go back and listen to that interview, is amazing because she says, you know, you need to see each other on a regular basis time and time again. And that's why the 12-step process works and all the various basements and churches around the country because they see these people, they get reinforced by saying, you know, this is my problem. I don't want to do this anymore. And they see other people like them. And so that's kind of the environment that has to be created. That's the environment that has to be created around the concept as well. But so in my issues, I've been always struck with the idea of coffee and caffeine. So even in practice, I would have people give up their coffee. And they would have to go through the three-day of, of headache. Some will even get nauseous and get really tired. And then three days on the other side, they'd feel fine. And it was like you couldn't have done anything better in, your, in their life or ask them. But those three days were pretty miserable. That's clear sign, by the way, that the body is addicted to something is when you stop giving it what it wants and you all these withdrawal symptoms are very uncomfortable. 
very uncomfortable. You could throw in deep depression on that as well. So the thing is, so you, and you can read more and more about coffee or caffeine. So caffeine is the ingredient in coffees, and they're not the same, but the terms are used interchangeably. And so one of the things about caffeine is it blocks a thing called adenosine. And so, or adenosine receptors. So it sounds kind of technical, right? So what does coffee actually do for you? Why does it make you feel awake? Well, it doesn't really make you feel awake. It makes you feel less sleepy. So what it does is the caffeine goes and blocks these adenosine receptors from adenosine coming in and hitting those. And what adenosine is, as you get tired, that's actually adenosine coming in, hitting these receptors, your nervous system throughout your body, that allows you to be sleepy. So you gradually are more and more sleepy. And so that's it. But when you take coffee, and now we can say people have a relative difference in how they process their caffeine. But for the most part, we're going to pretend that that's not the example. And everybody reacts the same way. It's an artificial assumption, but it's mostly true. And that if we block those, we'll call them sleepiness receptors, you're not going to feel sleepy. So you'll feel awake. So awake is, in this definition, awake is not being sleepy. We've blocked your sleepy receptors and therefore you're left with being awake. That's how caffeine works. And yeah, you can say it speeds up your heart and so on and so forth. This is correct. And so you add these two together and that's how you get the caffeine. But the fact is, it is addictive. It is addictive. You stop it. You're going to have headaches. You're going to be nauseous. You're probably going to be nasty for a while. You might even be depressed. So it's pick and choose. And some people will say, well, if it serves me well, why would I care otherwise? It's up to you. It's a free life. You're given your body learn to use it well. And I'm not saying by having caffeine, you're not using it well. I have coffee. I just finished my last cup a couple hours ago. So what does that make me? So I thought that I was going to go through a month of no coffee last month. But like with everybody else, there's always the excuse of, you know, I need some coffee to go on. Um, now we're going off to a conference. And so all I can say is it's on my list of important things to do when I come back to sort of say, can Carl go through the headaches and all those other things that everybody else is going to have to go through, has gone through, to give up his caffeine and what do I feel like on the other side? So there's that. The other side is caffeine, coffee, is getting a lot of good press in terms of, did you know if 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 you have Parkinson's and have caffeine that you're incidence of your tremors go down? And did you know that caffeine actually helps you produce ketones? Primarily it's fatty acids. It re helps release fatty acids into the bloodstream, which speeds the processing of ketones faster. <clears throat> so it's a real plus if you're looking at it with those blinders on. And that's how everything is. You look at certain blinders, you can write an article. It is good for these things. Uh, it's good for the liver in many ways. However, and it also, it, with your coffee, it produces dopamine. And so the more you force yourself to produce dopamine, and this is the stick, one of the sticky wickets, uh, the problems, is that if you're doing something that helps you produce dopamine, the, hey, you're doing fine, buddy. You're doing fine, buddy. You just keep on, you know, it's, it's, it's the gratification hormone. It's, some people consider it the, the survival hormone. 
you know, when you were starving and found food, your dopamine went up. It was a good thing you found food. And so it's your reward saying, good guy, good woman. You found the thing that's going to keep you to survive another day. You should be rewarded. You should feel good about this. You should feel good about yourself. But when you habituate yourself to something that drives you to have another cup of because you're producing, you're, you're, it produces more dopamine, you're going to have a dopamine withdrawal. It means you're going to go into negative territory, and that's hard. You're going to be dopamine deficient. So when you're dopamine deficient, that's part of the crankiness and nobody loves me kind of thing, and it's the opposite of feeling good. So it is well documented that caffeine does uh, directly force your body to secrete dopamine. So that is kind of one of the fine prints of what an addictive substance is. The other... Uh, the other way uh, um, certain addictive substances are addictive is because they increase your serotonin uh, production. And by the way, the serotonin and the dopamine are very similar in terms of where they're produced and how they're produced are on the same sort of pathway. So uh, it's the difference between crack, cocaine, inc- increases your dopamine by a lot, and what should I say, uh, ecstasy increases your serotonin by a lot. So this is how they get differentiated. Now we're splitting hairs, but you get the point. And so when you start having something common, like coffee, you know, and alcohol is issues as well. You know, it, yeah, they're all legal, but it doesn't mean that it's not hurting you. A little is okay. A lot, you know, you have to measure that. And so, and and what are the things that we're measuring? So what I'm trying to give you here is a larger perspective and now bringing it around, you know, would coffee in any way affect your homocysteine? Well, you know, it's funny you asked. You're a good listener for asking that particular question and that it does. It tends to bring down your B vitamins, your serum B vitamins. In other words, set in kind of a deficiency. So if you're anything that's going to be lowering your B vitamins, right, now you know Folate, folic acid, B9, B12, B6. You can go B2, but we're just going B12 and B9. Anything that lowers those is going to mess with your methylation cycle. It messes with your methylation and folic acid cycle. That's going to increase your homocysteine for the most part. Increase your homocysteine. However you get there, increasing your homocysteine, it causes those same problems. So therefore, you can say... Heavy coffee drinkers, long-term chronic, heavy coffee drinkers will have a homocysteine problem, will have a cardiovascular problem. So now if you added into that subset of chronic coffee drinkers, um, people who use sugar and milk, well, they've really amped up their problems. You know, so it's now become, you know, a carb issue and all those things. So I hope you hear that. One other thing I wanted to mention in its uh, maybe I'll save it to go in at length, is that you hear gout about gout a lot. And so gout has to do with primarily gout. So gout has to do with, it's defined by elevated uh, uric acid uh, in your blood. Uric acid is a kind of an antioxidant, but it's also a crystal. When you move, when you produce too much, these crystals fall out of circulation. And what does that mean? Falls, comes out of circulation, and they are deposited in various parts of your body, primarily joints of your body, some joints more commonly uh, than others. So you think of your 
bunions, your, your big toe, the bunion or your big toe in your little toe. But it can be anywhere. It can be in your fingers. It can be in your knees. But primarily, it ends up being in your foot, little toe, big toe. And you think of Ben Franklin, who had to have his foot up on the cushion the time during the Continental Congress. And uh, so he had a lot of homocysteine. But where does all this come from? What's the issue? Well, what it comes from is this, this person who has come to gout, come to getting gout, right? Come to having sustained elevated uric acid levels. Well, he got there. He or she got there because they had a life of rich food, which meant and means a pretty high carbohydrate diet on a regular basis, which means back to the whole, you've been forcing your pancreas to pump, 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 pump insulin. And your insulin is getting dog tired of it. Your glucose is now chronically elevated because you can't produce enough insulin. And so primarily, so we call that insulin resistance, right? Insulin resistance means you're now having to produce a lot of insulin to get the same glucose lowering effect that you used to get with very little insulin. So that lack of insulin sensitivity is the same thing as saying insulin resistance. So insulin resistance is what creates the gout, the elevated uric acid levels in the first place. A lot of people think that uric acid being the antioxidant is there to put out the inflammation that high insulin and high glucose levels are causing. So you have the firemen showing up and now we have too many firemen and their fire hoses are uric acid, and their uric acid is now causing other problems. So then you say, well, you got the answer. And the answer is a low-carb, high-fat diet, the ketogenic diet. And you're absolutely right. However, in that month or two of transitioning from a fat diet, you know, high ketones, first creating ketones and then learning to use them, your body, that metabolism, is that as you start to produce ketones, your body has to start recognizing that it should save your ketones and not let them go out with your urine. So that's what happens in the process. First, your ketones leak out with your urine, and that's why you can measure them initially for a month, maybe two months, uh, with a urine strip. But after that, they're not measurable, and certainly it's not a valuable way to measure at all, ever. But that's what happens. But at the same time, while it's trying to figure out that don't let ketones go out with the urine, keep them so that we have a constant supply in the bloodstream. Well, it, what it starts to do is ordinarily it would be letting out your your uh, uric acid into the urine. It then starts gets a little confused, starts keeping even more uric acid. So your uric acid levels go up when you start a ketogenic diet for maybe a couple of weeks. Then it falls, then it falls lower than it ever was before. So in the net, it's a good thing but in the transition, it can be a very painful thing. So saying why it's caused from insulin resistance and giving you the context there, and also saying you have a period of weeks, if not a month or so, in which I simply tell people, stay on your, your gout medicine, your cultrocine, or whatever is prescribed to you, and just go through that so you don't have that painful period, and then you just wean yourself off the medication after you are keto-adapted. Okay, I'm going to stop there. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation and you learned something new. And I hope you go look up Kilmer McCulley. And I hope you go read the article, The Fall and Rise of Kilmer McCulley. And I hope the idea of homocysteine is 
a pretty interesting story for you. Till next time. Bye-bye. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp. I just wanted to encourage you to send in your questions to drgoldcamp at ketonaturopath.com. Many of you have, and so what I've done with these questions that I've gotten back to most of the people I email, but some of the questions that were so good, and if they were overlapping to other questions, I would combine them and try to put that into the topic of a podcast, either via one of the micro topics that are covered in an interview. As you know, we cover a lot of topics in any given interview or some of my own sort of reporting, if you will, on some of these issues. So uh, please keep the questions coming. Feel free to send in an email and uh, I will get back to you. One thing I want to say, a number of questions have come in in which I've given this answer and the email didn't work. So just make sure that you're receiving at the same email that you sent it in. And I think that might've been the difficulty. So I look forward to your questions. I just wanted to make sure that you knew that I'm hoping to answer your questions. And I think this world of keto is not just black and white. You know, it's nice that it's simple, but it's not simple for some. I'm really trying to, you know, go down as anybody any of you who have listened to all my podcasts, we started way back when, history and evolution, and epilepsy, and so on and so forth. You know, now we're seeing some tremendous overlap in uh, various uh, mental disorders, such as schizophrenia or neurological disorders that are not just epilepsy. And also, just for people and losing weight, it's sometimes pretty complicated for them to engage in keto, and so they need some help. And so that's the whole point of least that's what I think I'm doing, is exploring the world of why are there other factors? So in exploring some of those other factors, we've covered addiction, we've covered hormones, we've covered uh, nutritional deficiencies, we've covered certain metabolic lab results, and we'll go further. We'll even get to more on genome and aspects. So these are all just contributions that make for an obstacle for some people to engage easily in the ketogenic diet. This is my belief, and these are the things that I've discovered, and I think other people have discovered some of these things, but not ever put them together. So stay listening, send in your questions, and I will definitely get back to you.